Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Toro. For more than a century with cutting-edge turf equipment and irrigation solutions, Toro has had your front nine covered and your back nine too. In fact, Toro's always had your back, period. Toro is as committed to your long-term success as tour pros are committed to their shot. That's down to top-notch customer support from Toro and its dedicated local distributors, both of whom are passionate about delivering turf equipment and the irrigation solutions that solve real-world problems. Follow at Toro Golf on Twitter and reach out to your local Toro distributor today. Today's episode features Senior Director of Agronomy at the Banded Dunes Golf Resort, Ken Nice. Ken has been there uh, forever. He's been there since uh, before the opening of Banded Dunes. He was the construction superintendent at Pacific Dunes, and uh, now he oversees the entire resort's agronomy. So this was a really exciting uh, podcast. It was uh, really awesome to get to talk to Ken about a number of things, including basketball. And without further ado, here is Ken Nice. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Tell me about your uh, your journey as a high school basketball coach. How long have you been coaching the uh, the high school team, and uh, and what what's it like in the in the winter? Like, what's it do to your schedule? So um, I started coaching. I think this might be my 18th season total. Um, the girls' varsity job opened up. I ended up taking the girls' job and ended up coaching girls for seven years. And enjoyed it a ton. Had some great relationships from that. Um, then, then the boys' job opened up, and I was kind of enticed to do that from both administration. And I was kind of curious to get back into the boys' side of things, and so took that job on. And uh, a couple of years of doing okay. We got to the playoffs the first year, but I still didn't think I really had my system down. And it was, I think, the third year we started in with the triangle. You guys run in a zone or you, you, you play man to man. Like what you got a full court press, you know, one, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not really a press guy. To be quite honest, we've adopted the Syracuse zone system and we, we can play man. It's not like it's not our, but zones are primary for a variety of reasons. And my biggest one is it reduces teaching time on the defensive end and makes you competitive very quickly on the defensive end. There's, you know, some three or four simple rules that, you know, you drill over and over again. And so what I found in the high school level is by having a more efficient defensive system, you can spend a lot more time on offense. So that gives us more time for skill development, shooting, execution, all those things that come along with the offensive end. Is your dream then that Phil Jackson, like late in his life, decides to become a, a really diehard golfer and visits the resort and, and swings by practice? See, now here's one though. 
Phil, great, everything. I'd love to meet Phil, but I think it was maybe it was 10 years ago, maybe a little longer. I don't know. Tex Winters came to Gill Coliseum in Corvallis and put on a triangle clinic. So two hours with Tex Winters putting on the triangle clinic. And then I got to meet Tex Winters after that, that, that clinic. So um, Phil, yeah, it's great, but I got to meet Tex Winters. So I don't really care. Pretty good. As as a Bulls (laughs) fan, I'd settle for that too. Um, So I think that's a a curious parallel. It's something I've been thinking about before, you know, talking to you about this is, is how does coaching basketball relate to, you know, running a, huge maintenance shop, you know, one of the biggest maintenance operations in the, in the world, uh, for golf courses. And how does that, how does they, how do they work together? Do you pick up things in, in basketball, coaching basketball that translate to your day in day out job? And do you pick up things, you know, working maintenance that translate to basketball? You know, I've thought of this uh, for a long time. I've actually thought of this and and I, I think about how many guys are superintendents and also played some kind of team sport in the past. And it just seems like the two parallel very well together. It's like, you know, it's a team sport. So you got to have all the parts working together and not against each other. And just like basketball, you know, we get a fresh guy that comes in, doesn't know a thing about golf. You start, you know, teach them how to rake bunkers. You know, this is how you mow a green. So it's like, you know, that skill development is still there, you know, and I think the same pride you get from watching a kid come in as a freshman that didn't look like much to all of a sudden being a real player by their senior year. The same goes with, you know, a greenkeeper who comes in clueless and all of a sudden they get motivated. They love the job and now they're studying their education and now they move into a tech position or an assistant position. And, you know, that development from the core is kind of our whole deal. What we do here is there's a superintendent dedicated to each, each golf course and a dedicated staff. And I think that works better than if we tried to just like have this big free for all over all, you know, five, eight teams and then the par threes and the common grounds. It's like you kind of have these pods of teams developing within each other with a team leader. And, you know, and obviously we try to follow a very similar philosophy from course to course, but Certainly, I'm not going to tell any of the superintendents how they're supposed to go about their business. Everybody's still an individual. I mean, I imagine that each course, in a way, is a little bit of its own beast and its own, has its own quirks and inner workings and and even like microclimate, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, the eastern holes on Bannon Trails in the summer are quite warm comparatively to the rest of the resort, you know? <laughs> Uh, I was, I was the superintendent of Bannon trails prior to old Mac construction. And I left Bannon trails to, to do the golf course construction at old Mac. And then Scott Huntley is, is now the superintendent was the assistant and he moved in that spot, but it was almost like a complete climate change from the windswept-ness of old Mac with no wind breaks and that ocean influence, it felt like you dropped 10 degrees, 15 degrees from the Eastern side of Bannon trails. So mm-hmm. what are some, you know, of the, you know, challenges that that presents with, let's just take trail. I, I think there's a lot of different things that you can talk about, about a lot of different courses, but uh, it, speaking of trails, like what are the different things that you fight, in those different areas of trails? 
Uh, some soil, there's some soil differences uh, in there, even though we've, we cap material on the east side, it's slightly different sand. And, um, you know, for the most part, it doesn't pose a huge issue for us, but, you know, we will get some disease outbreak in sections of trails that we don't see any in other sections. So it's, it's not quite as easy to just, you know, go wall to wall um, with that kind of situation. You uh, you started working at the resort. Uh, if I if I read correctly, you were there before about two months before the opening of Band and Dunes. That's correct. Yeah. And you were an assistant superintendent, and then it, you as you progressed, you were the construction superintendent at Pacific, uh, head superintendent at Trails, construction superintendent at Old Mac, mm-hmm. uh, and then you also oversaw the construction of uh, of sheep ranch and now you're the director so i mean your career has kind of mirrored the resort as it's get bigger you you're getting more and more responsibility uh talk to us just a, a little bit about the evolution of 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 banded dunes through your eyes as somebody that's on the grounds every day yeah you know and it's funny because it's not just my journey it's like a lot of the other guys that have also been along on the same ride you know and um you know, it's just really been a remarkable experience to be a part of. I mean, I'm very just thankful that I had the opportunity to be involved in it. But when I first came here, you know, we heard the word was, hey, it's not going to be just one course. Because at the time, this band and dunes was kind of, it's not going to be just one course. It may be two, could it be three, could be four. And you want you were, to believe you were that. living in Oregon, right? You were in yes. Cavour- Corvallis, I was in Astoria, Astoria Golf Astoria. Country Club okay. up north. And that's a very unique course in its own right. Um, it's easy to hear things. Okay. I mean, how many times have you heard of a development that said, oh, they're probably going to have three or four courses. And then, you know, one gets built and doesn't quite fly right. And, and then, and then the development never really gets momentum like this it's kind of been the opposite experience at Bannon Dunes, you know, heard this kind of murmur that there could be more than one or two or three or four courses and I'm at Bannon Dunes for 10 months. And then all of a sudden we have this fire at the property that is now Pacific Dunes and it burns all the gorse and Tom Doak's heading out to look at the routing differently because he can see the contours now that the gorse is gone. And then, then, you know, I still remember the, um, the word was, I think, Mike Kaiser was like, well, you know, Tom and his group, they're not doing anything right now. And maybe we'll just go start building a few holes this winter, you know? And so this all started, this momentum started. And then um, it's funny by the end, by June, we'd build 11 holes, you know, started in winter and all of a sudden we'd had 11 holes done and, and things were rolling at that point. And um, it was almost happened so fast that it didn't have, you didn't, I didn't really have time to think about it. I was just like excited to be a part of it. And to be quite honest, still to this day, I mean, building a Pacific dunes with uh, Tom Doak, his, his team, Renaissance golf and everything. I mean, that was my first foray into real golf course construction. And, and um, I think that was a real special time for not just myself, but a lot of people, a lot of people, including the Renaissance golf um, group. Yeah. I, 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 given how much Tom's written about it, I think it was a special time for him too. Mm -hmm. How you being, you know, that's your first foray into golf construction. And we, we hear about architects and designers that, 
you know, after their first design, they get so much more refined in their process of building a golf course, right? I, you know, very few superintendents get the opportunity to build numerous courses. And here you, you're, you've been part of the construction team of, is it uh, the, since Pacific, Pacific, uh, uh, trails, um, you know, sheep ranch and old Mac preserve. Yeah. And preserve. So how, how have you like gotten better at growing in and being that construction superintendent role in that role? Oh yeah. I mean, we definitely have learned things as we went and there's been an evolution. Um, the first one is that we started looking at, you know, we reduced the amount of, uh, and at the time, Troy Russell was the director of agronomy at the time. And Troy, Troy Russell is also the, the one who hired me to begin with. And he kind of, he was kind of leading a lot of the charge of trails and decided to kind of reduce the amount of colonial bent in, in the fescue blend that we used at trails. And what happened is we started looking at like big patches of fescue and we're like, you know, there's the surface. That's what we're after. The colonial was kind of had its place maybe in some spots, but it was prior to, it was basically Band and trails construction where we saw that surface with more fescue where we're like, Hey, let's give, let's give all fescue a shot at old Mac. Mm-hmm. So that was the first all fescue course we did. And everybody was on board with that. And, and I still think it's the straight fescue is still the best surface um, between sheep ranch and old Mac. Um, They've definitely, they definitely play like markably different than the other courses on the resort with sheep ranch and old Mac. And obviously they're the two newest, so they, you know, they would, but that, that fescue does, I think, play differently. Colonial, it tends to be a little softer. It doesn't quite play as firm as straight fescue. The other thing I guess I learned too, is if I look back Pacific, I was probably a little bit too lean on fertility and the growing process. And one of the things on that, it's interesting is like, you know, you hear a fescue, it doesn't want a lot of fertilizer. It wants minimal, you know, minimal inputs, uh, reduced water, reduced fertilizer, all those things that go with fescue. And it's, it's true. Once you have a mature surface, it requires very little nitrogen comparatively to, you know, a ryegrass course per se. But during growing, you need to push it while it's young and get that surface, you know, get some density up in the canopy and something to work with. If you, if you stay too lean, you know, you, you create all these voids and a lot of weeds move in. Some of the grasses can move in and, you know, you don't tighten up the surface quick enough. So I think that's probably the biggest thing I've learned is like, let's get a good, healthy pre-plant going so it can ride you till until you, you know, can put machines on it. That's kind of the thing we learned is like push the fertility early, get the canopy and the, the turf density up, then once it's mature, then you can back off. Then you can do the whole, you know, lean, mean, fast, firm. Mm-hmm. But so, you got to grow it first. You got to grow it first. Mm-hmm. I, I think everybody that listens to this pod that has a yard would appreciate, you know, my next question, which is about actually like getting the seed planted at a place like Sheep Ranch where it's, you know, or Old mm-hmm. Mac where it's blowing like crazy. Like what... That's got to be one of the most frustrating things, right? Mm, to be quite honest, it's not because we we've we hydro seed everything. Okay, what's that? So mean? it's like it's kind of like it, it basically it's paper mache and a slurry and with seed in it. 
So we got a, a thousand gallon tank and we put in nine, no, it's 11 bales. No, it's nine bales, nine bales of hydro seed mulch, which are, they're basically 50 pound bags of this wood fiber mm-hmm. along with a kind of a tagifying agent. And then you throw your fertilizer in there and your seed and it, kind of comes in this slurry and you you hose it out. You basically are applying paper mache on the entire surface. Now it's time consuming. There's no doubt about that. But um, if I can reflect back to the sheep ranch and you know, five mile point, the double green. Yeah. You know how massive that is and how exposed it is. You know, if we didn't get that hydro seeded fast, the whole surface blows away and you start over again. You know, so one of my biggest relief during the sheep ranch construction is we got that five mile point seeded, locked in. It, it had its paper mache coating. It wasn't going anywhere. Seed's not going to blow around. You're just going to grow it in now. So it was a huge relief when we were done with that. What like that? So do you wait for like a calm day in the forecast? Are you watching like it, it, to get that down? Like, d- d- does that help? Like, are you looking for stuff when you're, you know, different weather uh, patterns for well, when you're trying to do like, especially there where your most exposed point on the property? Yeah, we did end up getting good weather, but, you know, it, it, around here, it's tough because if you wait around for that calm day, you might not get anything done. You know, I mean, usually the wind is going to be a, a factor in the summer. It's usually going to come out of the north and you just, you know, you can't wait for the perfect window. It's you just got to keep going. I mean, so you can hydroseed in the wind. It's just the hydroseed applicator is going to end up getting covered, you know, one way or another. You're going to go against the wind at some point. They're going to be growing grass on their body. Pretty much, unless they take a shower, you know, (laughs) take a shower pretty quick and probably won't be an issue. But (laughs) so if your hygiene is poor, maybe you do get some germination. Um, What's your what's your favorite part of the construction process? Do you you like the different phase? Like, is there a part that you like, you know, you're most kind of amped up, excited for when you when you guys get to build these projects? I mean, they've all been so different, but. Certainly, just going back to the sheep ranch right now, um, you know, Bill Coor shows up, you know, Bill's going to be in town and, and, you know, Bill's going to go wander around the site and he will, he'll wander around and he, and he needs to do it solo to begin with, you know, which you got to give Bill his space just to get into his meditative zone and wander the property. And, but then, you know, Bill's really great too about including people and, and when he's kind of got all his thoughts together, that's when he starts kind of soliciting opinions from people. And so, you know, walking the routing, sharing, you know, listening to Bill's thoughts, um, even being able to, you know, throw in my input from time to time, but probably walking around the site with Bill, Mike Kaiser, Phil Friedman, um, when we hadn't even started the construction, just kind of walk Bill's routing before anything had been done. I mean, that. That, that, that gets your, it gets your juices definitely flowing. You know, there's a lot of parts of construction that aren't all that glamorous. I mean, putting in the drainage system in advance, uh, getting utilities where they're supposed to be, you know, soil amendments, all those things, building a reservoir and a pump station and irrigation system. Those are very much nuts and bolts and they all go on prior to doing really the cool stuff, mm-hmm. you know? And so 
once you're kind of through that phase when you've kind of got all the infrastructure laid out in advance and now you're actually shaping and and creating golf that's when it that's when it kind of gets exciting now for a quick word from our sponsor toro among the countless reasons why we go to the course communing with mother nature sits near the top of most lists and the company most trusted to responsibly maintain our golf environments toro continues to lead the way Its line of all-electric and hybrid mowers and vehicles do their job as well as ever. Better, actually, because while their precision, power, reliability, and comfort remain the same, this new breed reduces engine exhaust emissions, noise pollution, and increases efficiency and ease of maintenance. If only our golf swings were that productive and sustainable. Follow at ToroGolf on Twitter and reach out to your local Toro distributor to schedule a demo today. With the courses, you know... I. Obviously, like you're, you're so slammed. I was just there for a week, and you know, it seemingly every course is just booked sun up to sundown. Right. That makes you know you're not like a private club. You don't get a Monday where you get to do these maintenance projects. How does how do you guys get maintenance work done? You know, during the course of these really busy seasons, like in the summer, where you know it's sun up to sundown all day of golf. Like what? What are the things that you guys have to do um, to get these, you know, bigger maintenance projects done, such as like a top dressing? So the biggest thing for us is we view that first group is kind of like the group we're racing against. So the fairway units, let's say, if we want to move fairways, we got guys showing up at 330 and mowing with lights and trying to stay ahead of that first group. And so, I mean, that's the biggie. It's, it's, we try to do everything in advance ahead of that first group. And then in the afternoons, there's some jobs that are a little less um, distracting, like just filling divots and, and on, you know, fairways and quiet work basically. So we try to get all our machine work done, the mowing, get the greens mowed, get the fairways mowed, top dressing, all that in advance of that first group. So that, you know, their golf experience isn't, isn't impacted by our maintenance practices. And they got the signs that say, if you're the first group, you got to be the pace setter. You know, they're, they're, they're pushing them to catch you. <laughs> I'm not, I, it, it has been an issue at times. We, we, we haven't always won the race. And those can be tense days. I mean, and we do get the guys that are like, we don't care. We, we got a plane to catch. We're going to play in two and a half hours. And, and, you know, you, you know, you, you, you really want to be accommodating, but at the same time, you're like, we simply can't keep up with you. You, you may end up putting on a couple of greens that haven't been mowed yet. And we apologize. One thing I wanted to talk about was uh, Poana. Obviously, oh, that's yeah. a uh, that's a part of the ecosystem that you live in, uh, that you work in, and you know at at the resort, you know where you had that blend of fescue. You know, Poana is is the green. Like it, you know, you host the U.S. Amateur. It's listed mm-hmm. Poana greens at Banded Dunes, Pacific Dunes, Banded Trails. Old Mac you is still holding on fescue, but you know Poana and the kind of evolution of those golf courses you know what how long did you guys fight you know trying to keep the poeta out of the greens until you eventually just said you know what this is we're gonna let nature take its course it varies um certainly varies on on we 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 handpick 
pull out of greens for as long as we can. You know, it's it's a kind of a mechanical thing. And and the problem with Poa annual and the, the West Coast or anywhere for that matter on a green surface is the plant can seed at any mowing height. So even if you're mowing at a tenth of an inch, it's still Poa annual sending out seeds. There's no other turf grass that's doing that, you know, whether it's bent grass or it's fescue or whatever. If it's mowed at, you know, eighth of an inch, it's not going to be putting out seed heads, but Papoa is. And so that's, that's the rub. It's kind of an exponential growth and it's, it's easy to pick 50 poa plants out of a green, but then that's going to double. Then there'd be a hundred and then, you know, on and on and on to what I said in 5,000 become 10,000. And that's kind of at that point where you're like, kind of your options are limited you either have. And so 10 years is probably a good number to just kind of ballpark one way or the other, but you know, old Mac, um, you know, it's going on now 13, 14 years and it's still a fescue surface. Um, there is Paula in there, but yeah, it you can still see behaves it. like a fescue surface. This is kind of a long roundabout way though. You fight it and fight it and fight it until you say, all right, now we're shifting gears. Now we're going to start growing Paula. And basically we mow fescue at around 200 of, you know, so 200 fifth of an inch. And when it gets to POA time, you move it down to 125 or an eighth of an inch. So it's a, it's a big, it's a big contrast in mowing height and also fertile fertility and surface disturbance. I mean, with fescue, you, you want minimal surface disturbance. You want low fertility, higher height of cut all those kinds of things. But when you make the shift to POA, it becomes lower the height of cut, increased fertility and increased surface disturbance. And then pretty much instantly you start having a POA surface. It happens pretty quick. So, so like once you decide you're going POA, it just, it, it takes yeah. over. You're not, you're not, you, you just don't ride the fence. You're doing one or the other. You're either fighting it or you're going to start growing it. And, and- does it come in? I've, I've heard of it coming in on people's shoes. Is that a real thing? Like, do people's shoes bring it in from other places? Um, I've heard that too. And, and to be quite honest, what comes in on shoes may happen, but I would say that's kind of BS to be quite honest. That that's not, it's a negligible amount of pull that comes in. Okay. I just was curious. I'd heard that before and I figured you would know since it, cause I was wondering, cause you got people coming from all over the place. You probably should yeah, clean their I'm shoes sure, before I'm they play. Sh- I'm sure we've had some imported Paula from somebody that's come to this resort, but I just don't think it's, that wasn't the big issue. One of the biggest issues is surface disturbance. You can see where we get really severe traffic patterns on a brand new golf course. You know, they kind of emerge after you open you don't really know where those traffic patterns are going to go. You suspect on some of them, but after a year or two, if you go to those traffic patterns, you'll see a lot of the turf grass we planted isn't there. And that pole has moved into those zones. It actually tolerates traffic and surface disturbance better than some of the varieties we plant. That's interesting. You know, gray walls, the, in Marquette, Michigan, the golf course. Uh, not familiar with it. It's a but. Mike DeVries course. It's up in the uh, upper peninsula, but one of the, you know, they, they have, it's not really like a, 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 I wouldn't say it's a Walker friendly course, but you uh-huh. know, it's a perfect place for fescue, but they have, they have fescue with Lomo, uh, Bermuda, or uh, bluegrass mix. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. really neat because where carts go 
the bluegrass dominates. But anywhere there isn't cart traffic, there's you know it's fescue. So you mm-hmm. see these spots and and on these big hills where carts don't go, it's all fescue and the mm-hmm. green surrounds is it. But then where you know there's heavy traffic, which obviously fescue doesn't like, it's right. all bluegrass. And so it's similar to what you deal with with like tr- walk areas, right? Where yeah. people walk off a of green would probably mm-hmm. be a, that's where the poana kind of takes root. Yeah, without a doubt, you you can see it. It happens every time where you know those traffic patterns annual starts to kind of dominate those areas and then obviously continues to put out seed heads and, and establish. Has that been something that you guys like have learned and think about when you're building the course then is like, Hey, can we tweak this? So we have a wider exit point or something. It's always been a consideration. You know, I think um, you, you'd like to have multiple walk-offs so that you're not just wearing out one area. And in some cases, it's not easy to do. Sometimes the contours that are already there do lock you in. And, or and there's that, a cliff that, that takes up 75% of the, exactly. the space that somebody so, would walk. Yeah. So, you know, you do that as much as you can. But, you know, again, one of the things I think for superintendents is, you know, if I had one bit of advice on constructions and growings is, some of the things you think you can't mow or maintain, you really can. And, you know, I think the thing that I probably, probably got on Tom Doak's good side initially, just by saying, listen, build the golf course the way you want to build it. We'll figure out how to maintain it. You know, is is there a a specific feature that you and your head when they were, in building and designing the golf course, is there a specific instance that you can remember being like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that. And then it, well, it working out. Like, do you have a specific example? You know, uh, let's see the third hole at old Mac, uh-huh. the, the ghost tree hole, you know, how steep that fairway is very, I mean, I mean, it's really steep and it looks 10 times steeper when it's just sand and it's not turfed. So I was telling Tom, I'm like, I don't know if we can mow this. And so, you know, typical Tom Doak, he says, just mow it downhill. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll just mow it downhill. And actually, we have been able to maintain it. So it is working, but it's steep. And we do still have, you know, golfers will slip down that thing. It's, 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 it's a steep slope. So that one comes to mind. Like, I don't know if we can mow that, Tom. Of course, he had an answer real quick. Yeah, he's he's a man with answers. Uh, yeah. With, uh, with just overall with what's happened over the world, we see, you know, labor issues all over the place. The, the superintendent industry has been one that has had some labor, you know, struggles. Is that mm-hmm. something that you guys deal with uh, at Bandon? And obviously, you need more you know, super, uh, you know, people on your staff that almost anywhere, given, you know, the number of golf courses. you. Yeah. Have. I think we have, I think we have about 120 on staff. Um, you know, it's interesting. We're, we're doing pretty good. We we're only down maybe three or four open positions in the entire agronomy department. So I certainly sympathize with, uh, you know, labor shortage and in, in that, but we've kind of got a core of guys that kind of, have stuck around here for a long time. And, and that's, you know, certainly, um, you know, 
it's a huge deal. I mean, we're, we're thankful as, as we can be for, for the longtime guys that are the core of this staff that, you know, I mean, ultimately you want it to feel like a family environment that, that we're all, you know, we're here together. We're all in it together. Um, you know, you want to have a, a place, you know, who wants to come to a workplace that you dread coming to, you know, I mean, it's not sustainable. And so I think we really strive to create an environment that is healthy and fun and, and productive and gives people a life, you know, that it's not, it's not all work, you know, that they can enjoy time away. And, and, but while they're here that, that, you know, everybody treats everybody with respect and, and, you know, and it's a, that good family team environment. And certainly, you know, you have the offline, you know, the outliers where, you know, it wasn't a good fit or this person didn't work out good, but the core of this group here is really, really a strong, strong, strong team. I mean, one of, one of my favorite memories from my trip was, you know, I'm out there every morning shooting footage and, you know, I'm out there with your grouse crew effectively. Mm -hmm. No, nobody else is out there. It's before sunrise and uh, it's cold. And, and I was, uh, I was at abandoned dunes and on the, just like in the front part of uh, Band in Six, I, I was on the fifth green looking at mm-hmm. something, and I uh, I this guy passed me, and he drove his cart up, uh, you know, to the front of you know the April the where the fairway starts on the six hole abandoned, and he yeah. just parked it there, and I was walking, and I'm I'm walking, I walk like 150 yards, and I walk by him again, and it, and he goes. And he, and he kind of like, I startled him and I, mm-hmm. and he, and he turns to me and he goes, Oh, he goes, just enjoy the view, man. And I'm like, <laughs> and I just thought to myself, what, you know, like what a delightful thing to wake up and, and, and get to just like experience every morning. Cause to me, that was my favorite times out there is like, you're out there, the sun's coming up, it's getting light and that, you know, you're here, you are on the cliffs of the ocean. Um, is there being there for so long, you know, knowing every nook and cranny, is there a spot on the property that you particularly love to find yourself because of just, of you know, the way it makes you feel what you think about or, or different things like where, where's your special spot at the, at the property? Okay. So, um, I know you've had to have read about Howard McKee and how integral he was to the development of the resort, but, Howard always referred to those as power spots mm-hmm. on the property. And, you know, you can look at obviously five mile point now that it's part of the resort. That is a, that's a power spot. I mean, if you're walking in the morning and you see the rocks off five mile point and that whole, you know, even looking to the North and seeing Cape Arago and to the South Sea man and rocks. I mean, that, that's a power spot. The other one that comes to mind right out of the shoot is 16 green at Bandon. It's just got that feel that you know, land you, right behind it, I yeah. think, is just like I, I, all I could think about was golf, building a golf course down there after I, when we, yeah. when we played there. You know, so 16 abandoned, that green site's a power spot. I love. Um, then, then I, maybe it's the elevated parts of the golf, uh, of the resort that stir me, but there's also, there's the Shorty and Charlotte Dow Memorial where, Mike Kaiser first saw the property and I don't know if you saw that it it's basically behind 14 T at trails. Yeah. There's a little plaque there, but that lookout is really cool because you see the Siskiyous to the South. And if you pan over to the West, you see the high dunes 
towards Bullard State Park and, you know, obviously that. And then directly across that valley, there's one of the beach trails goes up to a high point on those dunes and there's a bench up there and there, you know, it's rugged, really wild dunes up there. And there's this elevated view of there that gives you that ocean shot as well. And then, but if you look across the valley over at trails, you can see Charlotte and Shorty's memorial spot as well. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. Those are four of the spots anyway. I, I love that one on trails, especially like if you're playing late afternoon, because the way the sun comes through that meadow is just it's just so stunning. And in the the trees and it, that that's one of the coolest spots. And and people don't know there's a hiking trail along that ridge. That's really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That hiking trails. Awesome. I, you know, I take my dog on that walk a lot, almost daily. One of the trails we use. There's also, you know, non-golf related, um, if you want a time for just, you know, quiet reflection and, you know, kind of a meditative state going to the labyrinth, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that was, was dedicated to Howard McKee. Um, that is a really a special spot. Might be better than going to the range if you're fighting something, you know, go oh, there, probably. you know, yeah. going go there and just, you know, yeah. get, go to the range and increase your level of frustration over what you've been doing or go to the labyrinth and just kind of take a step back. That's the thing I find myself with like a lot of these, these golf places is like, you know, you go there and it's just like a a sprint. It's a marathon to play as much golf as you can, but really like there's so much outside of golf, like just of, of hiking and different outdoor things to do that because you know, what makes it great for golf makes it great for just living life. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. One question I wanted to ask was with your uh, with your different staff. So you you know you have you have superintendents that run each golf course. Do you have you probably have different personalities? And what do you see from you know uh, superintendent side of things managing these people, uh, managing these crews? Like, do they have different dynamics with their teams? And then are they do they excel in different things? I'd say yes to both questions. Yeah, every every superintendent here is got a very, you know, unique personality unto themselves and, and it does reflect in their crews. Um, it's a hard question. Obviously every crew though, definitely has their own vibe and it stems from the top, you know, it stems from the superintendent, but then, you know, the assistant superintendents all have strong influence. And then, and then some of the long-term greenkeepers who've been here also 20 years, I mean, they got their own influence. So that affects the team, you know, they're kind of like the glue guy. They're the glue. They might have more influence than everybody, right? Yeah. Yeah. We've got a whole set of staff that just, you know, our common grounds departments, you know, it's, they've got a big job, common grounds. They got the practice center to take care of. They got shorties. They got all the trails. Uh, Jeff Wilson's our superintendent of common grounds. And then they've got, you know, the, um, all the landscape throughout the whole property. Well, we've got guys on, the common grounds team that they, they literally know exactly what to do every day. You don't even have to tell them anything. They're just already on it. They, they, they just, they're almost self-managing and Jeff Wilson would tell you that. And he's thankful for that, but it's, it's, it's just amazing. Very thankful to work with such a good group of people. How many times has it snowed there? Does it snow like once or twice a year or, you know, like, and what does the place look like when it's snow? Is that one of the cooler aesthetics? 
Um, I would say snow sticking and actually being an issue for us is kind of maybe once every other year. Mm -hmm. Um, if that, so it's not a big deal. We usually get most, when we get snow, it's usually in March. I don't know why, but it generally is in March and it throws a huge monkey wrench into the operation because unlike a lot of places where hey, it's snow and you, you know, people know you're not going to play golf. Yeah. Well, we sometimes get snow and there's a full house here Yeah. And, if, and they've come from a long way and we really don't know what to do with them. I mean, there's only so much food and beverage time and other, you know, distractions, but they're all here to play golf. And it, 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 you can feel the pressure. I mean, of just there's snow on the ground, you know, we can't do anything. We can't make it melt faster. We can't. And, but you, you want these, you want our guests to get out on the golf course as quick as possible too. So that, you know, I actually think I dread snow sticking on the ground more than anything at the resort. <laughs> hey, sneaky best time of year, in your opinion, to visit outside of, you know, non-high season. Like what's, what's the best time of year that, that people might not like, you know, if I, I'm trying to book a trip, I'm, I know I'm not going to be able to go high season summer. Uh, what's the best shoulder or off season time to go? I, February for some reason, just sometimes has just great weather. Don't know why, but you know, don't even have North wind. It's just 60 degrees, sunny and it's February. I was there like the first week of March a couple of years ago, and it was like 70, no wind for like four straight days. I couldn't believe it. So one of the, I think that is, I think it's a secret that's certainly been let out because our winter plays so heavy, but the winters are very nice here. It's, it's really mild. Um, there's a lot of golfable days in the winter that are just as good as any point in the year. Yeah, I you know I've got a real bone to pick with people from like Portland and Seattle that complain about winter because the couple times I've been there, it it's like I'm like, well, this isn't bad at all. This is pretty good. Yeah, I will say it's interesting though. Like uh, you know, my good friend Eric Johnson is the director of agronomy at um, Chambers Bay, and he was the superintendent at Bannon Dunes, then Old McDonald before he went to Chambers, but. He said, you know, those Puget Sound winters are a lot harsher, though, than down here. I mean, Seattle's a lot colder. It, winter is really winter in Seattle. Maybe not so much in Portland, but Seattle, Seattle, I lived there for about six years, and it, those winters are not all that fun. Not as bad as Chicago, not yeah. claiming that. Yeah. I put myself through this. This is a personal decision. So, you know, I shouldn't be holding animosity towards anybody. Um, well, hey, you know, I think there'll be future future talks, future pods to do, but uh, really appreciate the time and, uh, and you coming on to talk with us uh, here, you know, and uh, really enjoyed, enjoyed our time out at Bandit. Thank you. Appreciate it. Today's episode was edited by the wonderful Meg Atkins. Thank you, Meg. Uh, as a quick reminder, holidays are approaching. We've got some deadlines. If you guys are looking for a last minute, not really last minute, I am a last minute shopper. So this, you know, 
this would preclude me. Um, but if you're looking for a gift, the prints are awesome. Our deadline to order them is December 8th. So if you are, are looking to get a print for somebody, we've got all the abandoned golf courses as prints. They're spectacular. Um, if you're looking to get something, please do it soon to ensure it will get there before uh, Christmas. So thank you guys for listening to another episode of the Fried Egg Podcast. We will be back later this week with another episode. And if you missed Garrett's uh, latest story on the Hickory Open, highly recommend. I really enjoyed it. Thanks and talk to you guys soon.